Well, you couldn't uh, have read that prayer, that hymn, that song of Hannah's without realising she's happy. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. That's my my strength. It's a symbol for for, um, strength. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. And as I've already said, it's not surprising that she is happy. If any of us has interacted with the agony of childlessness that uh, some um, women endure and then seen uh, God provide a child, we've seen something of that exaltation of heart that Hannah clearly feels. But very interestingly in this song, she hardly mentions her childlessness. In fact, she doesn't mention her own childlessness specifically at all. Instead, she paints actually a much broader, more far-reaching picture of the underlying reasons for her happiness. And those reasons are rooted, fundamentally, she's going to say, in the way that God works. It's as if the birth of her son has become, uh, for her, uh, actually quite a small example of the grand pattern of God's providence which applies to all people in all places at all times. That's where this song is going. And, and actually, in, in the, um, the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, this, uh, the, this pair of books, which we're just going to look at the first eight chapters uh, of the first book, but in the, in the whole narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, the story of Samuel and uh, of the birth of Samuel, and particularly this song, serve as a sort of introduction to the whole of those two books. In fact, if you turn to the end of the two books, at the end of 2 Samuel, you see King David many years later as he faces uh, um, his own death, singing, uh, writing a couple of other songs which in many ways pursue some of the same things that Hannah is introducing to us in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2. So, in the, in the mind of the author who wrote 1 and 2 Samuel, this is important, this song. This is going to give you a key to understanding so much else that will happen in the rest of, of uh, uh, those two books. And actually, frankly, so much of what happens in the whole of the Bible. Now, let's go further than that. So much of what happens in the whole of history. This is, this is big, this is important. Hannah then is singing not, not just a sort of private thank you to God, she is proclaiming something. She has seen something in this moment of joy that she wants everyone to see. And you could say she has seen how to be happy. That is absolutely a vital, central concern of all human beings, isn't it? You know, frankly, from the earliest days, right, right back to the early Greek philosophers, um, 
thinkers have recognised that possibly the most fundamental question for human beings is how can I be happy? It shapes our lives, whether we consciously are aware of it or not, profoundly. The um, philosopher um, um, Blaise Pascal famously, uh, famously said that every action that every person ever takes, they take because they perceive that that action will make them happier. Even, he says, people who take their own lives and commit suicide do it because they perceive that it will be better for them. Whether you see it or not, actually everything that you do in your life is ruled by your perception of what will make you happy. So, so it's vitally important to understand what Hannah's going to tell us about how to be happy. I mean, frankly, you couldn't listen to pop songs uh, for long without realising it, could you? My, I, I just searched the iTunes library for the keyword happy and got uh, um, everyone from the Rolling Stones to Leona Lewis via Bruce Springsteen, the Carpenters and the Cause, all singing songs entitled Happy. So here we are. Here we go then. That's uh, teed us up to try to understand this question. How are we going to be happy? And first of all, let, let, me, let me just sketch out what our modern world's basic story is about how to be happy. Basically, our world says you fight as hard as you can against all opposition to, to, to attain your own happiness. In many ways, um, uh, that story has been um, shaped and influenced or at least um, um, has found a happy partner in um, the story of evolution, Charles Darwin's story of evolution, where he described, in fact, the development of all species as simply being competition and the survival of the fittest. And so, um, that has been adopted by our culture almost as a mantra. You know, you fight your way to the top of your career. You, you, you fight for your chosen partner. If, if the chosen partner doesn't make you happy, well, you owe it to yourself um, and to your genes, perhaps, to get rid of that one and to find another one that does make you happy. Um, in 1976, I think it was, Richard Dawkins wrote a book entitled The Selfish Gene, which, which just caught a mood in society. And uh, frankly, that, that, that mood has grown and grown and grown. Richard Dawkins said, we are the victims of our selfish genes. They manipulate us to make selfish decisions to pr promote our own well-being and happiness. Just this week, though, uh, the philosopher Mary Midgley has released uh, a book which takes that apart. In this, this book, the, the, the Solitary Self, she points out 
that that narrative of each one of us fighting for our own advantage has not brought happiness, does not bring happiness. In fact, it leaves us in a sort of atomised society, in a sort of seething cauldron of individuals fighting tooth and nail and none of them finding happiness. So how can we be happy? If that narrative, if that story just doesn't work in the end, how can we really be happy? And that is where, frankly, this ancient, simple, humble woman, Hannah, can tell us more than all the philosophers, all the media personalities, all the pop stars could ever do. If you want to be happy, she says, first of all, understand the way the world works. Get it into your head, get it into your heart, get it into your into your spiritual DNA. Understand the way the world works and then you will have the beginnings of a path to happiness. So let's look then in verses 4 to 10 of this, um, this chapter at, at how Hannah tells us the world really works. This is important. Verses 4 to 5 she begins by describing, we could say simply, what has happened. The bows of the warriors are broken. Those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. Her own experience is in the background. You see, she, she sees beyond just her own happy circumstances a, a, a vast panoply of God working in a whole series of reversals. Reversals of power, first of all. Powerful warriors, she says, are humbled. Weak stumblers are armed with strength. Reversals of wealth, she says. Well-fed plutocrats go hungry and ordinary labourers are fed. Reversals of joy and fruitfulness. The proud woman boasting in her amazing families, perhaps she has her rival Peninnah in mind there, she pines away. But the barren woman, she says, bears not just one child, seven children. She goes on then in verses 6 to 8 to, to uh, emphasise who has done this. It is the Lord. It is the Lord who controls our wealth. Verse 7, the Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. It is the Lord who determines our status. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. And it is the Lord, ultimately, even who controls our life and our death. Verse 6, the Lord brings death and the Lord makes alive. 
he brings down to the grave and he raises it up. And he can do this because he is the Lord who created this universe. Verse 8 again, the foundations of of the earth are the Lord's, upon them he has set the world. That's his picture then. Great reversals done by the Lord in which the poor are lifted up and the mighty are put down in which the proud are tumble and the humble are exalted. And frankly, most of us will respond like this, won't we? We'll say, well, it's all very well for you, Hannah, to say that. And to, to be honest, I can see the emptiness of this survival of the fittest way of living. Most of us can. But I don't see this other thing happening. By and large in this world, rich people stay rich, don't they? Oppressors often die peacefully in their beds. Poor people do starve to death. Frankly, Hannah, it looks like to me that like you just got a bit overexcited because of your baby. It's not the way the world always works. And let, 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 let me try and persuade you that what she says really does have profound truth to it. You see... The Bible doesn't say that that is the only way the world works. It doesn't say it's the only thing that is going on in the world. If you read through the Bible, you'll find that it's actually full of people who are asking just that question. You say, God, you're on the side of the poor, and yet look at this circumstance. That's a legitimate question to ask. That is a legitimate observation to make. It is a legitimate challenge to put to Hannah. But there are answers. Look, turn with me for for a minute to the Psalms to see one classic example of that question being asked. It's in Psalm 73 and I I want you just to turn it up for a, a couple of minutes. It's on page 586 in the Church Bibles. So Hannah may be a bit excited in her circumstances and not exploring some of the darker side of that. But the Bible is not short of people who do. Listen to this. Asaph complaining. Psalm 73 verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human wills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them, drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? How how does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. The complaint that a lot of us have, isn't it? Frankly. 
and the resolution of Asaph's concerns and complaint is very, very important for us to notice. It's in verse 16. He says, When I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So it's when he enters the presence of God, you see, when he, when he enters into God's perspective that he starts to see something. He starts to see what Hannah sees here. He starts to see that there really is a God who is working there. He hasn't eliminated that other way that the world so often works. But he will. He begins now and he will bring that process to completion. The world right now is a complicated, confusing tangle of things. Dog eat dog, survival of the fittest, the sort of Darwin's Darwin Dawkins view of the world is absolutely one aspect of the way that this world works now. But we've already had enough clues that it's not really always like that. It doesn't deliver what it promises. It doesn't seem to work. And the human spirit, in the end, always rebels against it because it bring, delivers so little. And the Bible says there is this other theme, actually the dominant theme of the way this world works. Of a God who raises up the poor, who comforts the afflicted, who brings down proud people, proud nations. and raises up humble, faithful, patient, ordinary people who brings misery, actually, to those who are proud in their inmost thoughts and brings extraordinary joy to those who humbly wait on him. I can't, in the end, say to you that that is transparently clear in everything that happens in the world. But I can, in the end, say to you that that story makes better sense of this world than any other story there is. Hannah, let's go back to her, then has affirmed 
This is what's happened. God's brought down the powerful and raised up the humble. And it is the Lord who has done it again and again because he is the creator of all the universe and so he can do that, even bringing death and life. And then she says in verses 9 and 10, this is what he's going to continue to do. This is what he will do in the future. Verse verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. His, his saints just means, means um, people who trust in him, people who are faithful to him. He will look after them. He will guard their feet. He will be alongside them. And it will not be their strength that enables them to prevail. It will be his protecting hand. Verse 10. He warns of the opposite as well. She warns of the opposite. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. God is a judge and he will judge. Often in this life, he brings down the mighty and that process will come to perfection in eternity. No proud heart will be left in his presence. Not a one. He will preserve his faithful ones. He will bring down the proud. And then she says... Something very interesting. Verse 10 again. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. There was no king in Hannah's day. From time to time people had talked about it but generally there was suspicion of kings precisely because in the Bible um, people were acutely aware that power corrupts and makes people proud. Sets them into opposition towards God Hannah foresees a king as the story of 1 Samuel unfolds we see the appointment of kings and we see exactly what the Bible predicted that none of them is good enough not even great David the greatest king of the Old Testament but Hannah knew it would need someone as powerful as a king to implement God's purposes. Actually, Hannah's song inspired another song, you know. song sung by another young woman who would have a child. She was called Mary. The song's called The Magnificat. It's found in Luke chapter 1. And the child was Jesus. Oh yeah, God would bring a king. King Jesus. And more than that, that king would show how to rule. He was poor. He was weak. He was scorned. He suffered shame. He was driven to the cross. He found himself completely 
helpless. And yet on the cross he won his greatest victory. He paid for our sins through his death. And so he set each one of us free. More than that, he rose from the dead as the first promise of ultimate victory, ultimate liberation for all his people who now could live eternally with all their sins forgiven. Hannah just senses that there must be a king who will do this. The New Testament says, here he is, Jesus, who is the epitome of all that she says. God raises up the humble. He raised King Jesus up to his right hand side. And everyone who humbly commits themselves to him, he will raise too. That's the way the world works. Says Hannah. That is the way the world works. If you doubt it, look at Jesus. So now let's come back to that first question. How can I be happy? Here is the key to a happiness that is absolutely unshakable, indomitable. Hannah is happy because she has humbly accepted and committed herself to this God who works in this way. She has joy in her heart. My heart rejoices in the Lord, she says. She has found actually an inner strength through knowing this God. In the Lord my horn, my strength is lifted high. She is no longer the victim of her enemies. Even if they do win some minor battles now, my mouth boasts over my enemies because she is rejoicing in eternal salvation, in the ultimate victory of God. She is looking forward to the victory that Jesus won. We can look forward, look back to the victory that Jesus has won on the cross through his death and resurrection. We can say with deeper meaning, I delight in your deliverance. That is the secret of happiness. That is the secret that has been discovered by millions upon millions of people in all sorts of different situations down through the world, down through history. I'll just give you one example. Uh, William Wilberforce, he is of course mainly remembered for his extraordinary successful work in uh, abolishing the slave trade, I should think everybody knows about that uh, uh, these days. But actually most of his life was characterised by failure. The um, decisive bill for the abolition of slavery was, only, was passed actually a month after his death. 
But he was overwhelmingly a happy man. Even though, for as good as all of his life, he was thwarted again and again and again. He, he was known to, to have laughed helplessly at jokes, particularly um, actually jokes at his own expense. He loved playing with children. He'd spend his day humming, probably rather tunelessly, joyful hymns. Even uh, on one occasion, the day after a key bill of his had been defeated in Parliament. He woke up next morning and he was a happy man. Not that he didn't care, he cared passionately about it. But he had a happiness which was deeper. What was his secret? Here's something he wrote. The gospel freely admitted makes a man happy, he said. Gives him peace with God and makes him happy in God. It gives to industry a noble, contented look which selfish drudgery never wore. And from the moment that a man begins to do his work for his Saviour's sake, he feels that the most ordinary employments are full of sweetness and dignity and the most difficult are not impossible. If any of you, my friends, he wrote, is weary with his work, if that dissatisfaction with yourself or sorrow of any kind disheartens you, if at any time you feel the dull paralysis of conscious sin or the depressing influence of vexing thoughts, Look to Jesus and be happy. Be happy and your joyful work will prosper well. Amen, says Hannah. She saw what thousands of saints after her have seen and proved in their own lives. about you? I have to say, as we uh, come to the end of this study, that there is also a haunting warning. And frankly, this week it has been the thing that has preoccupied me more than anything else. Hannah says in verse 3, pride kills that happiness. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows by him deeds are weighed. Pride is the fundamental fuel for that other way of living, that self-assertive, power-based, survival of the fittest, brutal competition way of living. Pride cuts us off from God too. Because it says to God, I don't need you. 
pride always leads to a fall. I have to say, in recent times, I, I have come to see for myself pride as my most crippling failing. And not that it's great comfort to me, it's probably the most significant failing of most of our culture. Pride fuels a thousand different sins. It fuels straight arrogance. It tells us you're great. Get out there and take what is yours. It fuels self-pity if we're thwarted. You deserve more than this. How could that person or situation be so bad as to deprive you of this? fuels faithlessness. Why should I believe these things that the Bible says? I'm on my own here and I can look after myself. It fuels anger. How dare they treat me like this? I will get straight with them. It fuels passive aggression like they call it. The sulk. And it always cuts us off from God. I've come to see, frankly, for myself, that the source of so much of my of a misery that I have is not my circumstances, not my situation, not the bad things that come my way. They're bad, but what really affects my heart is a prideful way of responding to them. Because from beginning to end, Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Are you going to be happy? Am I going to be happy? Am I, am I going to? Am I going to seek that? deep happiness that actually can face anything, anything, absolutely anything, even my own death with a song in my heart. Because I follow Jesus. Jesus summed up on one occasion everything he wanted to say by those little set of aphorisms we call the Beatitudes. We're looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus on Sunday evenings and we have called this Sunday morning series the Beatitudes of Samuel. I hope you're starting to see why. When Jesus said, blessed is so and so, blessed is so and so, he actually, you could have translated him, happy is so and so. And the one he put at the beginning was this one. Happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is true. Hannah saw it. Jesus proved it. What will happen in your life? Will you be happy?